But we are in week four of our series called Spaces. And I've been so enjoying this series um, because I believe God is trying to help us to grow. And last week we talked about reframing it. And God wants us to reframe the things which have happened to us. Uh, Today's going to be a fun one. Um, Because today we're going to talk about people. Everybody say people. People. Look at the person next to you and say, you is one. People. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word settled in heaven. Thank you for the principles of your word. I pray that as we open our hearts to receive, that we would receive boldness to apply, be convicted, be corrected, and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Before you're being seated, just tell them, you gotta love people. You can sit down in Jesus' name. You know, one thing about the Word is that the Bible said it is sharp, two-edged. It divides asunder soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And it is a discerner, Hebrews 4.12, of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And uh, Wednesday night, one of our one of the points we kind of got stuck in was if God cannot correct you, he cannot cover you. And sometimes, how many of you know the word does not just give me life, the word cuts. The word cuts. And, and so you've got to let the word cut you sometimes. When, when the word cuts you, it's not to hurt you, it is to develop you. Somebody say yes. It is to develop you. It is to make you what God is carving you out to be. And so today, you know, we're the series on spaces, we're looking at our life like a house because the Bible tells us in Second, First Peter that we are being built into a spiritual house. Um, and when I started to, to think about this series in the weeks ahead, I thought, you know, there's one thing just about every house has And that's people. Um, And and some some houses have one people. Some houses have, and how many of you know that one people is sometimes enough to deal with? Come on. And and we all that one people. I, I say that to say sometimes I'm enough to deal with. I annoy myself. Uh, But then your house can be filled with other people, husband, kids, wife. Some of you have parents that live with you or family that live with you. Uh, And then you have guests that come to your house. You have people that come over and hang out. and, and, And so my point in saying this is that there is one thing that is constant in your life, and that is people. Say people. People, you deal with them on your job, you deal with them at the grocery store. You deal with them at the road, on the road. Help us, Lord. You deal with them, come on, you deal with them at church. People. And I was talking to a pastor friend of mine um, some time ago, and he said something that has just stuck with me, and I have, I have just, I've attached it to our team. We have talked about it in staff meetings. We say it in passing. We say it jokingly. We say it seriously. And he was saying, you know, at his church, they have this quote they share with their team. And he says, when, when people are just kind of being people, he said, we say, people be peopling. And, and so, you know, when the staff is dealing with this or that, or, you know, I'm dealing with something, and somebody asks me, are you okay? I just say, people be peopling. That's all it is. Everything's great, but people be peopling. How many of you have got some people that people in your life? You've got some, you've got some folks in your life that you just look at them and you're like, God, I need grace. Need grace. And, and, and so people come into your space 
and you have to determine how you're going to deal with people. Uh, Here's the reality. Many of us in this room have been rejected by people. We've been hurt by people. And we like to focus on the negative aspect of people, but if we're being honest, we've also been fulfilled by people. We've been encouraged by people. We, we have been loved by people. We have been supported by people. And the reality is, is people can be put in your life to test you. You know, I was thinking, this is, uh, this is all in joking, but I was thinking last night, you know, growing up, uh, there's a rule that my mom has adopted in recent years that she never had when we were growing up. And, um, you know, I met my wife and, and her family when I was 14, and so I've known them almost 20 years now, and, and there's a rule they've had since I've known them, and that is you don't wear your shoes in the house. And, you know, so when Damerson and I got married, that wasn't a rule I abided by. It became a point of friction real, real quick, you know? And, 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 you know, so now in our house, it's, it, you, when you come in the front door, take your shoes off. Right, we, don't, we, don't want you, we got babies, they're crawling on the floor playing. We don't want your nasty, dirty feet all over the floor. And my brother, my oldest brother, loves to test my wife's limits. <laughs> and so he'll find the closest rug that he can with his shoes on, and he'll just hang out there like this. <laughs> and knowing that if his foot hits the ground, he's going to get tackled. And I was, I was laughing about that last night because it's such a picture of people sent to test our limits. And so as we begin today, I first want to correct our perspective by looking at how God relates to people. Everybody say God. Number one, God loves people. God unequivocally loves what he created. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, beginning, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his what? His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Scripture here clearly indicates that God loves people even long before people loved God. And and, and these people, Preachers who want to be so theological, but they're an inch deep and a mile wide, would say that God only loves his people. I just read you one scripture that tears the daylights out of that theological stance. Christ did not die for the godly. It would have been a waste of his death. No, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for me when I was at my worst. Christ died for me when I didn't have it all together. Why? Because in this, God demonstrated his love toward us. That he died while we were yet sinners. Now, I want you to listen to me. God loves people. God loves white people and God loves black people. And God loves Christians and God loves Muslims and God loves Republicans and God loves Democrats. God loves homosexuals. God loves people who are transgender and battling with that oppression and battling with that temptation. The problem we have in our society is that we have equated love with approval. God's love does not mean he approves. He died for us, showed his love for us long before, long before we ever fell in our sin. God is holy. He does not approve of sin. But from his holiness, he is love. Are you with me? God loves people. I was reading an article last night on 
powerful man of God, David Wilkerson, who's gone to be with the Lord. And in his book, The Cross and the Switchblade, it tells the story of how he met the gang leader named Nicky Cruz, and he was holding a switchblade to his throat. And David Wilkerson, the story says, looks him directly in the eye, and he tells him this, you could cut me into a thousand pieces, and every piece of me would cry out that God loves you. Every piece of me would cry out that God loves you. God is so madly passionate about people. So much so that number two, our second point, God saves people. Is there anybody thankful that God saves people? Look at the person next to you and say, you is one. You, you is one of the ones that he saved. You're one of the ones he delivered. You're one of the ones he set free. God saves people. Romans 6 and 23 said the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8 and 35 beginning, he said, what shall we say in response to these things? If, if God be for us, who can be against us? And, and, and it says, what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, peril, distress, nakedness, famine, sword, it is written for thy sake, we're killed all the day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter. But nay, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation shall separate us from the love of God. And this is what the love of God does, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I have come to tell you today that God is still able to save to the uttermost. God is still able to take the darkest, most broken, most wretched, most messed up people and save them from a life of depravity and change their life. And some of you ought to know because such were some of you. Drug addicts, prostitutes, battling homosexuality. Come on, y'all testify. Some of y'all in this room, and, and then some of y'all are like, well, I didn't do all that, but you were a sinner. You were still on your way to hell. And he reached down and picked you up and changed your life forever. Number one, God loves people. Number two, God saves people. Number three, God uses people. God uses imperfect people. I don't know why we have a higher standard of people than God sometimes has. Now, don't, don't misquote me. There is a standard of leadership there's a standard of holiness in God's people and God, who God uses. But God uses imperfect people. I'll prove it to you. What about Moses? Killed a man. Had a stutter. And God used him to deliver his people. What about David? Immoral. Killed his, one of his top generals in his army so he could sleep with his wife. Come on. What about David who sinned and God still called him a man after his own heart? And some of you that, well, good, I can sin and still. No. The reason David was a man after God's heart is because when David messed up, he fessed up. When David fell, he ran to God and repented. And God said, this is a man after my heart. What, what about Gideon hiding in a wine press, disobedient to God, confused and messed up, and God showed up and said, you mighty man of valor. God uses imperfect people. What about Abraham? I'm going to make a covenant with you. Get out from under your father and mother to a land that I'll call you to. And Abraham goes. That's great obedience. But then Abraham heeds the voice of Sarah and not the voice of God and has a child named Ishmael out of God's plan. And yet God still used Abraham. What, and you say, well, pastor, those are all Old Testament. Okay, we can go to the New Testament. What about Peter? Cussing, angry unsanctified Peter would cut a man's ear off in a heartbeat 
rough on the edges. And yet in, math, in, in, in Luke, Jesus would tell him, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Well, you, God, you mean after everything that I've done, after all the mess I've made, you are, I'm now, I'm a rock and on the church, on me, with me as leading your church for your charge. You're going to use me to build your church. What do you, because God uses imperfect people. What about somebody like Paul, who was named Saul, who persecuted and killed Christians? And God saw, God didn't go to the synagogue to get somebody to write two thirds of the New Testament. God, God didn't go to the priestly people. God didn't go to the clean people. God went to Saul, somebody who murdered and martyred Christians and said, why do you persecute me, Saul? Why do you hurt me, Saul? And used him to advance the kingdom. And so I've got good news for you. If you're in the room and you are imperfect and you have flaws and you have failed, you are qualified to be used by God. You are in prime position for God to pick you up and do something mighty in your life because God uses people. Not only does God use people in the sense of kingdom things, God uses people in your life. You know, many scholars believe that Paul, when he talked about his thorn in the flesh, that it could have been a, a physical ailment or disease. And, and there are times as a pastor I read that and think it really could have been a person, a thorn in the flesh. Come on, anybody know? Come on. But God is using people to help develop me. If you've got difficult people in your life, you just need to say, thank you, Lord. Because God is using difficult people to help develop. You say, what is he developing me? Some of y'all, might, he might be developing uh, patience. He might be trying to help you work through your anger. Come, I'm not, it's funny, but I'm telling the truth. People. God uses people. And then number four, God restores people. Luke chapter 22 and 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith would fail not. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Sometimes we have an inflated view of what we're really willing to do for God. Because Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And then the story goes on, Peter at a campfire with a little girl. Jesus is on his way to Golgotha to be killed. The Bible said that Peter, three times as he's pressed, denies knowing Christ. What a blight. I mean, I'm, I don't know if there's much greater of a sin that you could commit than denying the deity of Christ. Not probably maybe months after Peter, after Peter said, you're Christ, the son of the living God. This confession bore him the weight of a leader within the church, and now he's denying at a campfire to a little girl who's pressing him. Jesus goes on to die, resurrected from the grave. Peter, for all this time, bears the weight of his brokenness and the weight of his mistake. In John 21, 15, Jesus shows up. I want you to realize what is here and what is not here. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, 
follow me. Notice what is not there. First, let's notice what is there. There's a coal fire. This fire, this, this phrasing is only used two times in the Bible. The first time it's used is the campfire that Peter denied Christ. The second time it's used is the campfire that Jesus restores Peter. So imagine, how many of you recognize that when you have been through pain, there are things called triggers? Throw your hand up. Triggers. You, so you see something, somebody says something, you and it sets something off inside of you that reminds you of that moment. That campfire could have been a trigger for Peter. That the last time that I was at a coal fire like this, I denied him. And now I'm at the same coal fire and I'm sitting in front of him. We notice what is there. But now we got to notice what's not there. What isn't there is any mention of Peter's denial of Christ. Jesus did not take Peter to the coal fire to rake him literally over the coals. Jesus did not take Peter to that coal fire to tell him he failed and he messed up and, and he's never going to be able to get back. He took him to the fire to restore him. And he said, Peter, he told him in Luke, Satan's desire to sift you. And he said, when, not if, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. And so Jesus comes to the fire, doesn't mention the story, doesn't mention the shortcomings. He just says, you've got to get back on the horse and you've got to do the work. Feed my sheep. And then he adds this, follow me. Because one of the problems that we can run into today is the desire to do ministry but not follow him. Is the desire to do something for God rather than to follow him for who he is. So Jesus not only says, feed my sheep, but he said, you've got to be restored to follow me. God restores people. Here's our takeaway number one, our first takeaway. God's heart is for people. God's heart is not against people. God's heart is not angry at people. God's heart is for people. Everybody say, God's heart is for people. God's heart is for people. So we looked at God and people. Now let's look at Satan and people. Number one, Satan accuses people. Revelation 12, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto death. This word accuser, it means, to, uh, it means one who brings accusation. Satan wants to keep people in their shame by self-accusation. He wants to convince you that you've done too much, you've gone too far, God doesn't love you anymore. He wants to drown you in shame so that you can't be who God wants you to be. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Number two, Satan deceives people. From the beginning, Satan has desired to deceive mankind out of relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 2, we are introduced again to Adam and Eve, and God has told Adam, don't eat. You can eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't touch that fruit. You can't eat that fruit. And Eve goes and she partakes of the, she, she's standing at the tree and the serpent is in the tree and, and she's having a conversation with a serpent. Let me tell you something. This is why we need discernment in the body of Christ. Because that serpent wasn't out of place in the garden. Snakes belong in trees and on the ground and in bushes. And at that time, that snake had feet. That's the natural habitat of snakes. It's not out of place. What was out of place was what the snake was telling Eve. You've got to be careful when something looks like it belongs, but it's telling you it doesn't belong. And the snake says to Eve, did God really say? 
got to be careful because Satan deceives people. He wants you to believe that God didn't actually mean what God said he said. God didn't mean what he actually said. It was just a suggestion. And Satan deceived not just Adam and Eve, but Satan deceived the entire human race out of relationship with God. Hence why God sent Jesus to restore what was lost. Then number three, Satan encourages people to follow their own path. There are entire generations on the earth right now who follow the advice, follow your heart, follow your truth. Satan has led man to follow their own desires and their own plans and their own deceitful heart. Listen to me. There is no such thing as your truth. There is one truth, and it is Jesus. And Jesus is the word of God. Therefore, his word is truth. There's not multiple truths. I don't have a different truth than you. There's one truth. It's his word, and it dictates the way we live. The heart, the Bible said, is deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9, above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, you've got to understand this in an Old Testament context because, yes, the heart is deceitful, but once the heart has been redeemed and washed white as snow and you have a pure heart, the Lord will lead a pure heart. You, the Bible said the pure in heart will see God. But the, but, but the plan of the devil is to convince people that your way is better than his way. And your flesh cares more about you than he cares about you. So we, 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 we come to this point. Here's our second takeaway. Satan wants to destroy people. Let me talk to you point blank. Satan does not want you to have fun. He wants to kill you. If you are living in active sin right now, unrepentant active sin, it might be fun to live that way. You don't want to die like that. You don't want to die that way. If you're living in unrepentant active sin and you say, well, my life is okay, there will come a moment where you will reap death in your life because the wages of sin is death. I know this is not popular. The re you're going to see commercials tonight while you're watching that game about how fun it is to drink and party and how fun it is to do this and how fun it is to do that. They don't show you the reality of depravity that that lifestyle leads to. They will show you the bottle of alcohol. They won't show you the divorce attorney. They will show you the party. They will not show you the drug addicts. It, Satan wants to kill you. And what you need to do is start asking God, number one, to forgive you, repent of your sin, and turn. And God is able to redeem you. God's able to redeem you. So, so we, so we've looked at God, we've looked at Satan, and then here we are in the middle. How do we respond to people? Y'all with me? I know this is, is a little, little bit different than what this series has come, but we've got to understand that people are a part of life. You, there are many of you in this room right now, you wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for a person. Come on. A preacher, a father, a mother, a, a praying grandmama, a spiritual mom, a spiritual dad. You wouldn't be saved right now if it wasn't for a person. And because we deal with people all the time, we've got to learn what the Bible tells us about dealing with people. Because if we follow culture, we'll just want to fight everybody. Come on now. We want to cancel everybody. But that's not what the Bible tells us. So let's look at your neighbor and tell him, open up. Crack it open. Crack your heart open and let God correct you if you need corrected. Okay, here we go. Number one. We are called to love people. John 13. 
Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Verse 17, he says, these things I command you, that you love one another. Do you see within two chapters, and those are just the verses I picked out. There's others that say the exact same thing. But just in these two chapters, Jesus is trying to get a point across. And notice, we're going to start here. Notice, Jesus does not say, they will know you're my disciples by how you love them. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Disciples loving one another. We can't begin to love the world until we love each other. Because if we bring people into a dysfunctional body, they're going to be wounded beyond repair. Because they'll have heard, oh, there's this great family, there's this community, you need to come be a part of what we're doing. And then they come and nobody loves each other. They gossip about each other. They backbite. They can't stand each other. They smile in front of their face, but they talk behind their back. And you've got unsaved people who have experienced that in the club. I'm just going to be real with you. Experience that in the bar. They're experiencing that at work. And then they come to church where we're supposed to love and, 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 and we're supposed to just prefer one another. And now they've been lied to. Okay, so they've been lied to. So, so we, we're called to love each other and we can't be called to love them until we can love each other. And it wasn't by their miracles, signs, or wonders it wasn't even that they loved the lost. It was their love for each other. It's what made them different. And, and, and so how many of you know 1 Corinthians 13, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not what? Okay, we know 1 Corinthians 13, but have you ever read 1 Corinthians 12 leading in to 13? Because in, in, when the Bible was written, there were no chapters and verses. It was one letter just written straight up. And Paul begins to talk about, in 1 Corinthians 12, he's expounding upon the gifts. Everybody loves the gifts. I love the gifts. I love watching the gift of prophecy and, and gift of faith and working of miracles. And I love watching the gifts flow. And then I love when people function in the office and the gift of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and gifts of healing and helps and administration. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, is going on and on about the gifts to the church of Corinth. But in, in, in verse 31, after he finishes all of that, he ends chapter 12 with this little phrase, behold, I show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm but a resounding gong. What Paul was saying is the gifts are great. The ability to prophesy is great. You should desire earnestly to prophesy is what he said. Apostles, prophets, gifts of administration and helps and healing and wisdom and all these gifts have their place in the church. But if I have all the gifts and I don't have love, he's, he didn't just say I show you another way. He said I show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way. And, and so we have to love one another. Can I do a, a quick illustration real quick? Austin, I see you. I don't know which of them might be back there. Can you come here real quick? Um, and I'm going to ask you to just get on the drums real quick. All right? Just get on, this is like he's loving this because he never gets to play the drums. Just get on the drums. And Ashton, just give me some volume on the overhead mics. Okay, because I think some of you are looking at me and you've heard me you heard this preached all your life. You need an illustration, okay? Austin, you can plug your ears. But I just I want you to get in there and I just want you to start hitting the symbol. Just pick a symbol and just have at it, okay? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I mean hard. You let this go for a little bit. It's really annoying. Yes, I'm trying to prophesy, but in heaven, all they can hear is this. 
I'm trying to preach, but in heaven, all they can hear is this. I'm trying to minister to the hurting and the broken, but all they can hear is this. If I have not love. Some of you are like, thank God. (laughs) Okay, some of you are really glad he stopped, but the reality is that is what your life sounds like. If you don't have love, just a clanging symbol. I just, I'm prophesying, but it's just noise. Moving in gifts of help and wisdom and understanding and, and the gifts of healing and administration, but noise. I'm an apostle, but you don't love people. I'm a prophet, but you don't love people. You're a fraud. If I have not love. So not only do we love one another, but Jesus shows us in Matthew 9 that we are to love the lost. Matthew 9, Jesus comes up on the lost sheep of Israel, and the Bible said he was moved with compassion. That word moved, it means to be moved in a deep place with compassion. So that person that drives you nuts on your job, you need to ask God to move you with compassion. I will never forget, you know, there are just moments where you just feel God do what you've been asking him to do. Uh, Damerson and I were youth pastors, and we were dealing with a, a particular um, group of uh, a couple, I should say, uh, that was just draining us. Um, and, and I was just at my wit's end, and I was praying and asking. I was getting ready to tell them, like, hey, you guys got to step down. Like, we can't do this. And, and having troubles at home and troubles at church. And, and I remember they came into my office, and I had been praying, God, help me love them. Help me have compassion for them. Help me see something I'm not seeing that, that, that helps me to empathize and to realize that there's something going on, and they're not just trying to drive me nuts. They walked into my office after a meeting one night, and, and they just started what they did. And, and there was a part of me, and, and, and finally, I just said it. I don't know, you know, I'd probably say it now a little bit more. I don't even know if I'd say it more tactfully. I said it the way I feel like God wanted me to say it. But I looked at her in the eyes, and I said, what happened to you? Who hurt you? And it's just like everything broke. And, and my wife was in there, and we sat in there, and she just began to tell us that church hurt and people hurt and life hurt. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday. It was in this building. I could take you to the office we were in. I remember like it was yesterday. I felt the love of God just flood my heart for these people. I've never forgotten a day in my life. So what my point is is that if you will ask God to give you compassion, he will give you compassion. He will do it. Number two, so first, we love people. Number two, we honor people. Honor is the currency of the kingdom. As believers, we are called to see and to call out the redeeming value in people. We have to see them the way that God sees them. See them the way God sees them. Romans chapter 12 and 10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Here, here's, here's, write this down if you're taking notes. Honor elevates, dishonor decimates. When you honor somebody, it raises them up. They feel like they can do something they've never done before. Some people have never felt value a day in their life But how many of us, I'm valuable to God. I have value to him. I I feel valued. And so because I have that, I'm able to take that and make someone else feel the value that God feels for them. Honor elevates. Dishonor decimates. It not only, honor not only elevates people, it elevates Leadership, it elevates uh, uh, people who are leading in the kingdom of God. There is, a, there is a difference, and I feel like the line is pretty wide between honor and worship. You can honor somebody and not worship them. 
What happens to us is we get infatuated with trying to gain influence that we cross the line of honor into worship and we make those people God and they're not. I can honor the gift in you. I can honor the accolades and the achievements that you've made in your life but not make you God. I honor what God has done in you. I honor what he's done through you but you're not him. Y'all, do you understand? Honor elevates, dishonor decimates. It decimates your life because you will be a recipient of the anointing you honor. If you honor the anointing, the anointing you honor is the anointing you'll be able to receive from. Listen, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth could not receive any miracles because they did not honor him. They did not see him as a prophet and honor him as such, and so Jesus did no miracles in their midst. So when we have apostles or prophets or people who flow in gifts of healing and they come to this church and they minister in this pulpit, we honor that because that anointing we honor is the anointing that we will receive from. But if we dishonor it, it decimates our whole life. Okay. So, so, So here's what we do. The level of honor you give is determined by the amount of value that you perceive. This is my Bible. I looked looked this Bible up online last night, and and a New King James Version Bible costs anywhere from $10 to $60. And that's just generic. I'm sure it could be more expensive than that. This Bible was a gift. This Bible was a gift when I passed one of our licensing tests within our denomination. And, and has my name engraved on it and all that fun stuff. But here's the deal. My Bible is more valuable to me than $60. I have preached in different nations with this Bible. I have preached in different churches with this Bible. God has spoken to me in some of the darkest, most difficult seasons of my life through this Bible. Uh, God, has, God has led me through this Bible. I have another Bible in my office which is of equal value, and it is my dad's Bible that he gave me when we transitioned the pastorate to this church. And it sits there, and occasionally I'll open it, and I'll read through it, and I'll look at the notes he put in. It has value to me. I'm not just going to let somebody take my Bible. And I'm also not going to let somebody treat my Bible like it's just another book. When somebody grabs my Bible that's not somebody I know is taking it, what are you doing? <laughs> that's mine, not yours. Some of you have the Bible, the same, you have the same thing. The reality is this, the point is this, when you value something, you are able to see the extra nor, extraordinary in the ordinary. When I value people, when I honor people, I see God in people. You should live your life that every person you talk to has a 10 on their forehead. And you're like, what does that mean? Okay, on the 10 out of 10 scale, they're a 10. Not in looks, maybe not in attitude, but in the image of God, they're a 10. Come on. Because Genesis 126 in our image, let us create man. And in their image, he created them. So when I look at somebody who might annoy me, they might irritate me. Don't you dare look at your spouse. They might frustrate you. They might, you know, you might work at a place where you do a lot of group projects and you get stuck with that person who was that guy in high school who didn't do any of the group project but took credit for it. That person, I was that being convicted up here preaching that person and you're tempted to look at them and treat them as less than the image of God you got to remember God sees them as valuable so valuable that he gave the most precious gift he could give for their redemption and the way you treat them could be the difference between them coming to no redemption and them running from it That's why I get on this kick about y'all are going to go to lunch today after church, and if you don't tip good, don't tell them you go to the potter's house. I'm serious as a heart attack. If you don't tip good and you don't treat them kindly, do not tell them where you go to church. 
the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Who cares if they messed up your salad? You can kindly ask them to remake it. Don't be a jerk. Okay, I'm going to just. <laughs> I'm running on very little sleep. <laughs> Three things about honor. Whatever you honor, you protect, you praise, and you prioritize. Whatever you honor, you protect, you praise, and you prioritize. Listen to this. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 that husbands and wives are to honor one another. So when I honor my wife, I protect her. You are not just going to talk to my wife any old way you choose. You're you're not going to cross. You're not going to raise your voice at my wife. You're not going to say degradating things to my wife. I will protect my wife. I will praise my wife. My wife is the bomb.com. She's she's like, I'm glad she's with the baby today and not here because she'd be mad at me. So I can say whatever I want. Uh, She's the bomb.com. She's the best mom. She's the best wife. She's the best pastor's wife. My wife is incredible. She's, okay. I'm sorry, baby. I'm not really sorry, but, but then I prioritize prioritize what you honor. I honor my wife, so therefore I prioritize her. We are busy. Everybody's busy. But I find the time to say, if, if, if we're going to last, we have to honor each other, and in honoring each other, we have to prioritize one another. And it's the same in every aspect you honor. If I honor Greg... And somebody comes to me and starts talking out of pocket about Greg. If I honor him, I'm going to protect him. And I'm going to say, I don't want to hear it. And then I'm going to praise him. Do you you even know Greg? And then I'm going to prioritize him. Come on. I'm going to prioritize relationship with people we honor. We're going to prioritize, prioritize our communication with people that we honor. Are you with me this morning? You, you know what honor doesn't do? Honor doesn't gossip. Uh, here we go. There. See, the devil's trying to stop me, and it was my fault. I smacked my pack, and it knocked the batteries loose. Gossip doesn't honor, or honor doesn't gossip. You honor somebody, but you talk behind their back, you don't honor them. You manipulate them. You honor them enough to keep them around. Oh, I know. A little bit of honor just to keep you around is manipulation. You don't, you don't honor them. You gossip. And, and Titus 2 and 3 Titus is right, or, or, uh, he's writing to the church. Paul's writing to Titus and he tells him, tell them not to be slanderous. And this word slanderous is the Greek word diablos. Do you know what that means in the Greek? Devil. So he is saying people who slander and gossip are like the devil. And if you've got a saved bone in your body and you gossip, it ought to concern you. That you're not convicted when you talk about people. I'm talking about all people. We honor all people. All people. Because here's the reality. If they will gossip to you, they will gossip about you. And if you let them gossip to you, you are enabling somebody being like the devil. Okay. We'll move. Some of you are going to have to go back and listen and let the Lord correct you. Multiple times. First Thessalonians 5.11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even, also, even as also love in honor preferring one another. This, this scripture that Paul is writing, many uh, scholars are, are um, bringing a, a, a modern application to it and saying that this verse is like a pianist who accompanies the soloist. He might, the pianist might be uh, capable of a concerto. Our concert. But instead, he is only there to make the soloist sound good. We are called to help one another excel. 
I'm not called to hold you back. Come on, we got something we say here at the church. We don't compete, we don't compare, and we don't criticize. We don't compete, we don't compare, we don't criticize. And by criticize, that means I'm not going to sit in a room that you're not in and talk about you. How many of you know we need constructive criticism? But constructive criticism can only happen in the context of relationship. You don't just get to talk sideways about people because you have an opinion. It happens in relationships, so we don't compare. You're who God created you to be, and I'm who God created me to be. We don't compete. If we're competing, we're, we, are, we are guilty of treason. Because there's only one throne that we're worth competing for, and it's already occupied, and nobody is going to kick him off of it. We don't compete. We don't compare. We don't criticize. Number, number three, what we're called to do with people is disciple people. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Making disciples is perhaps the second greatest call of the believer. The first greatest call is to know Jesus. But the next greatest call is to make disciples. If you are a disciple, you should be making disciples. Lunches, coffee, breakfast, having them to dinner, having them over to break down the word, praying together, making disciples, teaching them to observe all that, you've, all that God has commanded. Much, listen, of our Christian life revolves around church, and rightfully so. The Bible said as we see the day of the Lord approaching that we should gather together all the more. But church cannot be the only context through which we live out the kingdom. I have had powerful <clears throat> experiences at Roosters talking to somebody about Jesus. Now, if y'all know me, I, I will, I'll run to Roosters. If you say, let's go get Roosters, I don't need a car, I'll run. I'll meet you there by foot. But I've also had it at the coffee house, and I hate coffee. I didn't, I didn't drink anything. But I sat there and talked to somebody and walked them through, what does the next step of discipleship look like? How can we take this next step in your, in your walk of faith? And we are called to make disciples, not just get people to come to church. Here, here's the steps. Go to people, evangelize. God saves them. You don't do the saving. You, you don't have that power. And you make disciples. You teach them. How many of you know that teaching takes a long time? Come on. You're going to be told something once, and you're going to have to say it again and again and again. Teaching takes time, so discipleship takes time. Because in discipleship, you are unlearning disciplines from an old life. I'm convinced there's some people that don't need deliverance. They need new disciplines. They don't need to be delivered from a demon. They need to develop the discipline to say no. Come on. Some of you, for the rest of this year, God is giving you a supernatural grace to say no. No, no to pornography. Come on. And in, in, if you're addicted to pornography in this room, God loves you. But you need an accountability partner. You need somebody that will break through in prayer with you. You need somebody that you can talk to and say, man, I am struggling and I need somebody to help me. You need that. But you also have to develop the ability to say no. Some of y'all need to go back to a flip phone. You're laughing, but it's the truth. Remove every door the devil could get in. Go get one of those big box TVs from the early 1990s. Not the smart TV that you can get on the internet with. Get rid of the iPad. Get the, get the Xbox or the <clears throat> PlayStation out of your bedroom. Get your com throw your computer away. Say no. <clears throat> you say, Pastor, it's easier said than done. It is, but in the process of discipleship, the Holy Spirit will empower you to do the will of God. Okay, all right. Here's our third takeaway. You are called to make disciples. 
You are called to make disciples. And then the last thing, the last thing that we are called to people to do is to restore people. You say, that's God's job. You're right. But God uses people. You remember that? God uses people. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, he is nothing. He, de- he deceives himself. So here Paul puts a demand on our spirituality. And he says, if you are spiritual, you need to be ready to walk the path of restoration. There's a couple things about restoration. The first is this. Whoever you're restoring has to be willing to be restored. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And when something has been broken, oftentimes the healing process is harder than what broke you. Paul tells the church, you who are spiritual, not more spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore a brother who has fallen into a trespass. Here's the truth about restoring. When you look at restoring as something that has been dislocated or fractured, How many of you have ever broken a bone? It hurt, didn't it? When something gets broken, it hurts. Has pain. Watch this. It becomes sensitive. You don't want anybody to touch you. And when it gets sensitive, it gets guarded. Stay away. Be careful with it. And when it comes to heartbrokenness or family brokenness or ministry brokenness or emotional brokenness, whatever it may be, when the brokenness happens, it hurts and then it becomes sensitive. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to tell anybody about it. I want to hide it. It becomes guarded. Don't touch it. Don't prod at it. Don't try to get in there. I don't want you to do that. And eventually, if you don't deal with it, it can't function the way it was supposed to function. Come on, if you just let a broken bone just sit there, it's going to cause your life to be significantly changed forever. If you don't set it, it can't function the way it was designed to function. And then ultimately, if it's neglected, it becomes infected. And when it gets infected, it can lead to amputation. Here's the truth about setting it. Number one, if you set it, it can't be amputated. Set the, set the fracture. Go through the pain of getting it right so that it can heal. We, this doesn't have to be cut off. It doesn't have to be cut off and then ultimately it will heal and the way that God created it to function, it will begin to function again. So there's restoring, and then there's a resignation. There's, he said, in, in the spirit of gentleness or meekness, in the same way it takes a doctor to set a bone, it takes a meek and humble person to restore. Because there's a remembering, Galatians 6 and 1, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. This word consider means to remember, take a look at. Take a look at yourself and Remember. That if not for grace, this could be you. The Bible said to let every man take inventory lest he fall. So not only are we called, we're called to love people. We're called to honor. We're called to disciple. And we're called to restore. Difficult people problem people, even people that we love so deeply, people that could do us no wrong, 
if they fall in a trespass, if they hurt us or they get hurt, restore them, honor them, disciple them, love them. Because God loves, God saves, God uses, and God restores people. Stand to your feet all over this room. May you become aware today of just how often, just how often people push you. May you become aware today of the areas in your life that you are battling temptation in these areas and need corrected. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to join hands with somebody next to you.